bum bum bottom 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 bum
like exist in the universe comics there's just so many comics but i was intimidated by the amount of comics that were in my apartment <laughs> we had at that point we had if it's eight years ago, we had been married for about two years. And I had read more comics than I ever had in my whole life. But I was surrounded by storylines I didn't even know how to dip into. And so I decided to reach out to just a few friends to see if they'd be interested in being in a book club with me and Brad. And it started with Brad curating the comics as the more experienced comic book reader for our group. The first graphic novel that we read was Batman The Long Halloween from Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. And it was very well received. And we had about maybe like five or six people showing up in the beginning. I think the key... Uh, I think it was five, including us. Yeah, so very small group. Yeah, Yeah. I think the key to growing members is that at the end of each meeting... We would do a group photo with everybody who showed up, posing with their copy of the book, and then we would post that on our social media. So other people who we knew, so we were posting it on Facebook. So other people we were already friends with on Facebook, they were people we knew in our actual lives, would see that photo and then go like, hey, that looks cool, and then they would join. Right. I think also another key was having Robert in our group. So Robert... Is one of our friends who we met when we both worked at Barnes and Noble, and he is a bit of a social butterfly. <laughs> and is. so he was really instrumental in bringing more members into the group. And and we remained open to new folks that we really didn't know. So if if Robert vouched for him, come on in. Yeah, right. exactly. And um, I think another key to the the lifespan of our book club is that uh, if you had come to even one meeting, you were on that little Facebook list for the rest of your <laughs> life. So um, when we send out our invites, we don't just send out our invites to the people who had come to the last meeting. We send it to everyone who ever came, even people who had explicitly was like, we don't like you anymore. You have hurt our feelings. I'm never speaking to you again. We're still inviting them. It is never it is never a close relationship on our end. And it has grown beyond the two of us. You yeah. know, in year seven, I think we only attended four out of the twelve meetings. Yeah. Because life has gotten busy and Saturday nights have become really precious for Lisa and myself. And it's really wonderful to see the book club continue without us. We're not like done with it. We'll be (laughs) back, but it's been several months since we've attended uh, a meeting. Uh, And, and, you know, like, here's the thing though. We had a couple people that we reached out to invited. Tessie is saying that she has one friend and that's pretty much it. So what would be your recommendation for her? I would say start with that one friend Mm -hmm. because it's all about like if you want to get into reading more comics and you're a person like me who enjoys the social interaction that you get from talking stories, any kind of stories, movies, books, comic books, like it's easier to read through or experience more stories if you are being held accountable by another person. And that's really what it was to me. I was like, I want to read more comic books. I want to read more different kinds of comic books. And I'm not going to do that unless I have 
a person or a group of people who are going to hold me accountable for reading one book a month. And what we discovered early on was that we had a few willing friends, just a couple, uh, barely a handful, who wanted to do this. But like Lisa said, once other friends saw these friends uh, taking on this group, they became curious. And what you may find is that there might be more than one or two people in your social group already who are actually curious about the art form and would be willing to join if you are open to them. Yeah. Uh, You know, because there's so much stigma around oh, you don't know this. There's so much gatekeeping. Like, oh, you know, you don't know all the X-Men, then you shouldn't be invited. You know, that's BS. Yeah, absolutely. I think a few other helpful hints I think I would give to sustaining uh, any kind of book club or film club is to have a organized set discussion. Mm -hmm. Because one of the issues with book clubs is... You know, you read the book, some people don't read the book, and then you just end up, you know, drinking wine and sitting around talking about your lives, which I did not want to do with my comic book book group. I really wanted to be talking comic books. So uh, for each meeting, we would have a packet of discussion questions. That you originally did for many years. Yeah, I for many years, I wrote those questions, and those questions would include questions that people who read the book really closely could answer, Some of them were questions for people who already knew a lot about comic books could answer. And some of the questions were questions that even if you hadn't read the book, you could still answer just from your own brain. Um, So I think having a list of discussion questions is really important. Now, over the years, our structure has changed from me writing all of the questions to as people are reading the books, they start throwing their questions up on... A Facebook group. On the Facebook group within like the context of that invite. And then whoever is responsible for making the packet will quickly go through the Facebook thing, um, cut and paste all of the questions onto the packet, and then those are our discussion questions. And I think that that works really well. We've had a few meetings where there hasn't been discussion questions, but me with my type A personality don't don't think those discussions go as well. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. One last thing I would say is if you are struggling to find people to join your book group, find your local comic book store. I know in this area there are several shops that have their own comic book reading groups. Uh, even if you don't want to join them on a long-term basis, it's always good to go test the waters and find a few like-minded friends and then steal them for your book group. Oh, that's pretty clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I hope that answered your question, Tessia. Thank you so much for writing in. And if you do start that book club, update us. Let us know how it's going because I'm curious. I want to see those Instagrams. Yeah. And if you have uh, any other questions you want to ask us, please send them to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to answer them. We want to talk to you. All right. So let's get into it. We are back with Arthur and Mira. And this week we are reading DC's Aquaman The Drowning, which kicked off their rebirth rebranding post New 52. If you don't remember what New 52 is, go back and listen to our last Arthur and Mira episode. And we've got all the details there. But basically, it was a complete cleaning of the continuity slate for the DC characters equaling 
an easy jumping on point for new readers. Uh, DC's Rebirth launched in 2016 and began as a one-shot comic of the same name written by Jeff Johns and illustrated by Gary Frank. I actually think it's one of the best single-issue comics of the last decade. At the very least, it got me pumped for DC just as I was exhausted by their New 52 storylines which I guess is kind of funny because New 52 rejuvenated my enthusiasm for their universe as well. I'm the rube that always sways under the new number one titles. So New 52, I'm there. Rebirth, I'm there. I'll fade away, but whatever you rebrand again, I'll be back with that number one. Uh, now, the difference between the New 52 and Rebirth is that Rebirth keeps the continuity of what was established in New 52. Everything that we read two weeks back in the trench remains in canon for the events of the drowning. Aquaman is still leery about being king, and he's looking to take his relationship with Mira to the next level. In fact, in Jeff Johns' Rebirth solo book, Aquaman proposed to Mira on the beach of Amnesty Bay, and spoilers, nearly five years later, and Arthur and Mira are still not married. We know those couples. God. <laughs> Get have... together, guys. Get it done. Get it done. <laughs> All right, so that's what we're reading, Aquaman the Drowning. And, of course, we are using Sue Johnson's Love Sands as our relationship guide. Lisa, give us the lowdown on Dr. Sue Johnson. The lowdown, A-OK. We're going (laughs) down in the trenches with Sue Johnson. Dr. Sue Johnson is a psychologist (laughs) and a family therapist who has developed a mode of therapy called EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy which uses the applications of attachment theory to reinforce the bond of adult romantic relationships. In her 2013 book, Love Sense, The Revolutionary New Science of Romantic Relationships, she uses studies from attachment theory and neuroscience to prove that monogamy is not only the preferred state of romantic relationships, but it is the natural state of romantic relationships. And the lack of romantic and sexual exclusivity in a relationship is a sign that the bond with the other partner is inherently weak. Every time I reintroduce Sue Johnson and Love Sense, I feel the need to put in this disclaimer. (laughs) Even though Brad and I are in a monogamous, sexually exclusive Mm -hmm. commitment, you won't see us attending a munch anytime soon. (laughs) What's a munch? A munch is a brunch for swingers. Oh, okay. I know things. (laughs) We do not see this as the only way of being. Any worldview that tries to take all of humanity and fit it in one box and say that anyone who lands outside of that box is somehow damaged or dysfunctional is inherently problematic. Relationships take all forms. Uh, Sue Johnson is a closed-minded, I don't know, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Puritanical kind of person. And And I feel like... Even though she's using the same, some of the same uh, studies and information Dr. Stan Tatkin uses, she tries to kind of manipulate them into her worldview. But I'll, maybe I only think of that because it doesn't align with my worldview. So who even knows? <laughs> Everything is just an opinion. Okay. So now we're in part three of Love Sense, Love in Action where Dr. Johnson finally gets into how to identify when your bond with your romantic partner is most vulnerable, in trouble, and what to do about it. She opens the chapter by laying out the phases of a romantic relationship. The first phase is spellbound, which is the beginning of a relationship where you're just falling in love and getting to know each other. 
The second phase is formal bonding, which is generally getting engaged, getting married, and cohabitating. This is the point in the relationship where you establish that the other person is your number one priority and their happiness is of equal importance to your own happiness. I don't think this will shock you, but Dr. Johnson is against cohabitation before marriage. (laughs) Shock, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Brad, actually, fun fact, we did not cohabitate before. (laughs) No, because you came from a strict Catholic family and your parents would never have allowed that. Exactly. And my, but my little brother and his current wife, still wife, forever wife. They're rebels. Yeah, they're rebels. And they cohabitated before, (laughs) before they got married and their relationship is, is going fine. Yeah. Atheist vegans forever. Yay. Woot woot. Okay. Um, the third phase is parenthood, which when the couple is child rearing Uh and the fourth stage is mature love, which is when children ultimately move out and the members of the couple retire from their work and they're just getting old together. And I guess that just continues until death of one or both of them. What's weird is that she doesn't acknowledge that romantic couples can go any other way. Like those are the stages of a relationship and there are no other stages. Pretty limiting. So Brad and I have decided to skip parenthood. We've opted out of it. We don't yep. want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Gross kids. Disgusting. So <laughs> if they're, if you like them, that's great. Yeah. And I like kids from a distance. What if we took a hard stance and we were like, nobody is allowed to procreate. procreate. I mean, it might be better for the planet, but whatever. In We've ruined run. it already. Yeah, we have 2050. We're all done. So would Dr. Sue Johnson consider Brad and I less of a couple? Yes. <laughs> or maybe we're smart. Because we're opting out of two relationship landmines, Mm. parenthood Mm. and transition out of parenthood. Mm. And we're just mature love to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So it's at the transitions between one stage to another that relationships are most vulnerable. So when we think about Arthur and Mira, they're betrothed, which means they are in the midst of formal bonding, though they are cohabitating. Uh-uh-uh, naughty, naughty. Um, but they're in more or less a quagmire of other types of transitions. Arthur is a new king trying to transition Atlantis and the United States into a new era of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Mira is trying to transition into life on dry land and being an ambassador for Atlantis, which is a huge step for her considering she is still fairly isolationist and hates everything about the land doesn't like she doesn't like doing it nope so they're in a real relationship danger zone relationships that are in secure attachment are more likely to make it through these phases as opposed to anxious or avoidant attachment got it dr sue johnson goes on to talk about how relationships end either by slow erosion or a sudden snap. In both situations, there is a belief that the emotional responsiveness of the other partner has ended and thereby the bond is broken. So in the case of slow erosion, you start like over the course of the relationship, one or both of the partners feel alienated Uh from the other partner and they feel like they're, they're reaching out 
for um, soothing behavior is not happening. In the case of a sudden snap, that could be an instance of infidelity, but it could also be um, another kind of uh, denial of soothing behavior. Like one of the uh, examples she gave was there was a young mother who was dealing with a lot of back pain and their daughter was sick and she was really afraid of, you know, what can happen with with their daughter. And her husband gets a email from his mother saying that his father is might be slipping into Mm -hmm. dementia. Mm -hmm. So the husband decides to go be with his mother as opposed to staying at home to be with the um his wife and daughter yeah right um and that was just kind of an emotional break that she was having a very hard time it's a decision that he made without consulting her and felt like a rejection and how she felt about it really didn't matter Uh so uh she was reaching out for soothing and he said i can't right and so that creates this Anxiety of going, well, if you're not going to reach out to me in this situation, you're going to alienate me in this situation, you're going to alienate me in other situations. And that's an extension of a lack of communication, right? Uh, Yeah. And you see that very much so in The Drowning. Yeah. And we'll get to that. The keys to emotional responsiveness is threefold. And I'm just going to read these directly from the book. The first is accessibility. You give me your attention and are emotionally open to what I'm saying. Two, responsiveness. You accept my needs and fears and offer comfort and caring. And three, engagement. You are emotionally present, absorbed, and involved with me. Okay. So if I feel those three elements uh-huh, uh-huh. of emotional responsiveness, then I feel secure with you. So it goes back to what you were saying. It's uh-huh, communication. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Agreed. Our expectation for emotional responsiveness is set by our attachment style. So if you are a securely attached person, you trust that your partner is emotionally available when you need it, so you don't feel the need to affirm all the time. If you're anxiously attached, it feels like your partner could withdraw responsiveness at any time. So there is a need for continuous affirmation. And an av- if you are an avoidantly attached person, that means you abstain from emotional attachment because it's been denied to you in the past and it feels it feels safer to operate under the delusion that you can go it alone and not have any kind of emotional bond. So over the course of a relationship, you know, we've been in one for over a decade uh, and, and 10 years of marriage. Right. Uh, we've been different versions of this, right? You, it's, it's not like you're always going to be avoidant. You're always going to be anxious. You can shift as a person. That's right. Our attachment styles are mutable and we're constantly reaching out for emotional responsiveness or soothing behavior. And our brains are logging that information all of the time and changing what our attachment is in that moment. And I don't know if I find this fact comforting or not, 
But even in a secure relationship, bonded people are missing each other's signals 70% of the time. Huh, yeah, I, I mean, that number sounds high, but it's impossible to deny that you don't, you know, miss those signals uh, with that your partner are receiving. Th- that's how arguments happen. <laughs> true, true. But it's not the ha- it's not the missed signal that's the problem. It's how the missed signal is responded to. Mm-hmm. So she uses the example of um, peekaboo between a mother and a child. Okay. So a mother is playing peekaboo and the child is having a great time, but then the child starts feeling emo- uh, like overstimulated. You know how babies get. They get overstimulated. And so the baby turns away and starts sucking their thumb to kind of withdraw from this the uh-huh. situation. <laughs> yeah, what okay. a jerk. <laughs> now, there is a wrong way a mother uh, can respond to like it. Like I just did. A mother could respond to it by trying to restart the peekaboo, like, come on, let's play peekaboo, come on, let's play peekaboo, and continue playing until the child eventually gets anxious and cries, and now the child goes, well, if you withdraw to get some emotional, you know, time on your own, it's going to make your mother anxious, and she's going to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's it's unsafe to withdraw. Or the mother goes, okay, it's okay, and then lets the baby, you know, withdraw from a little bit, and when the baby's ready, return. So it's not, the the problem isn't um, the miss, the dropped signal. The problem is how... You respond to the drop signal. Exactly. Uh, isn't that metaphor kind of an extension of what we talked about with Brene Brown and Thanos and Mistress Death about creating your own narrative? Like when you, you know, when that signal is missed, the other per- person in the party, the other person in that relationship then interprets that in a myriad of ways that could not at all be accurate to what actually is happening in that moment. Right, and the information that's being logged by your brain is... Like you're logging it as a feeling. And whenever we are trying to describe our feelings, things just get muddy. <laughs> so in the constant context of a relationship, we're constantly missing signals and recovering. But it's the consistency of recovering that determines whether the relationship will, will last or not. Okay. So Sue Johnson contextualizes this by discussing how couples argue. She cites a study by psychologist John Gottman, who comes up in every relationship book I have read. So we are eventually going to have to read something by this guy. But he found that it was not the frequency, severity, or even the contents of an argument that determines how and if a couple will last, but rather how quickly a couple can recover from an argument and return to emotional stasis. Hmm. So... While I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, well, what is the right answer on how to have an argument? And maybe the issue isn't how we're arguing, but the relation, the issue is, can we return to emotional stasis after, after the argument. argument? Because arguments, as we've talked since the beginning of this podcast, and as everyone who's listening knows, are inevitable yeah. and maybe even essential to a relationship. I think so, because those are our opportunities to soothe each other. And align, right? Yeah, and realign. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how this fits into my notes, but I think that this is a fascinating little nugget 
that I'd like to share with you. And I think um, will come up in our discussion of the book. Okay, bring it. FMRI studies show that criticism in any form, so whether it's put positively or negatively, <laughs> um, constructively or not, like criticism in any form is interpreted by the brain as hurt 100% of the time. Sure, I believe that 1,000% as a writer. <laughs> and, but I mean... E- like as a person in a couple, sure. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. oh, the way you're doing those dishes, I would clean the dishes first, Lisa, before you put them into the washer. Right. And then Lisa gives me the dagger eyes. <laughs> or uh, I'm thinking specifically of Brad does all of the laundry and all of the house household chores. We do talk about that openly on this podcast. So. Um, <laughs> Brad likes to do a whole bunch of laundry and then put it on the couch. And even if there's already clean clothes on the couch, he will continue to wash more clothes. And so um, on Saturday, I pointed at this mountain of clothes that's on the couch. And I said, this is getting out of hand. And Brad immediately like... Look, hold on. In my defense, Lisa, I had just returned from New Orleans, right? Yeah. And I had to do all the laundry that you didn't do while I was away. (laughs) That's true. And all the laundry from my luggage. And so rather than like do a load and then, you know, sort it, fold it, hang it, I did... I did three loads all at once because I didn't want to like do. Yeah, no, I, yeah. and I, look, the point is <laughs> how, how Brad should do laundry. The point is when you give your partner <laughs> any kind of criticism, uh-huh. you have to, you immediately do have to go into recovery and soothing yeah. mode. We just experienced that right <laughs> yeah, now did. on the air. We did the full cycle, but look how quickly <laughs> we recovered. Our relationship is forever. Uh-huh. I mean, yes, yes, not uh-huh, but yes, Lisa, yes. Dr. Sue suggests that when you're feeling alienated from your partner and you're feeling that lack of emotional responsiveness, you should have what she calls a hold-me-tight conversation. Hold-me-tight conversations require that the couple slow the moment down because part of the issue is you end up in a cycle that can quickly go out of control where one person can um, be asking for a- affirmation, but then the other person, the other person goes into withdraw and defensiveness mode. So the, the one person keeps reaching out and reaching out and getting more emotionally flared up while the other person is getting emotionally flared up and shutting down mm-hmm. the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, she gave it a cute little term, like the like d- defensiveness two-step polka or whatever. Uh-huh. I didn't include her cute little term in my notes, but now it seems like I should Google have. it. Ah, I don't know. You guys can read this book. Don't. <laughs> don't read this book. Do not give this, ma- m- this lady any more money. Even Ouch. though I did find this particular section very interesting and helpful. So once you identify this spiraling and you choose to slow the moment down... You then start to express your emotions openly, which can feel very vulnerable, but you want to lean into that. You want to express your emotions openly and then practice hyper empathy for the other person. Now, we remember from reading Dr. Stan Tatkin, when you experience empathy, you release oxytocin. And oxytocin is one of the chemicals of bonding. Hmm. So 
releasing oxytocin will remind you of your loyalty to your partner and it'll also help calm you down and feel more open. So it's good. Practice hyper empathy. Release that oxytocin. You have to make your emotional signals clear and specific and you have to accept your partner's clear and specific signals without defensiveness or expectations. That's challenging. I know it is challenging, but I do think that it's valuable because part of the issue of dropped emotional signals is because we tend to just bat emotional signals to each other from afar and we have an expectation of how it's going to respond. But if we do it without any kind of clarity, how is our partner supposed to know how to respond? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I agree. I agree. Okay. Right. So in Aquaman Volume 1, The Drowning, we'll see how Arthur and Mira navigate their way through this transitional relationship danger zone. And we get to experience some of their arguments and see how well they can recover from those arguments. And I think we'll be able to determine over time whether their relationship will last or not. Hey, we're only on episode three, Lisa. (laughs) Of four. Of four. Of four. So we better be drawing some conclusions. Okay, okay. All right, let's get into it, shall we? Yes. Aquaman the Drowning. So this is a trade paperback, and it includes Aquaman Rebirth number one, as well as issues one through six of the monthly series, which is now in its eighth volume, meaning there have been seven previous number one issues. (laughs) Oh, comics. What are you going to do? Hey, you know, as I said at the start of this episode, it works on me every time. Uh, The Drowning is written by Dan Abnett and illustrated by a whole bunch of people. We're talking about Scott Eaton, Oscar Jimenez, uh, Mark Morales, Brad Walker, Andrew Hennessy, Wayne Falker, and uh, Felipe Briones. There's only one colorer, though, uh, Gabe Eltab. Way to lock it down, Gabe. Yeah, he locks it down. He locks it down. Uh, So... Abnett is a British author who began his career cranking out comics for 2000 AD, the home of Judge Dredd. Gosh, I wonder if we could work Judge Dredd into this series someday. Um, Is he in a relationship? It'll be tricky. It'll be tricky. It'll be tricky. (laughs) Abnett actually did some Marvel work with Death's Head 2, The Punisher, and War Machine. But I first got into his work reading his Guardians of the Galaxy run along with the Annihilation Cosmic Event books. I'm not sure it's really Lisa's bag. Her guardians are very much the MCU guardians, and these guys are not them. But they are rad in their own manner. And, I mean, Nova. I love, love what Abnett does with Nova. Don't gate keep me away from the Guardians, Brad. Uh, You're right. I apologize. I was being a total comic book guy. I don't want to do that. You know me pretty good. Maybe it's about knights and stuff. Uh, Space knights and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Not not your bag, Lisa. Now, if you would not respond well to his Guardians books, you'll definitely not respond to his Warhammer 40K novels, which he is also famous for doing. This is a realm that I've always been curious about, but never enough to actually start reading. And actually, our friend from the Graphic Novel Book Club, uh, Ian St. Martin, has published a Warhammer 40K novel entitled Lucius, the Faultless Blade. 
And he's got a bunch of other stuff there. So let's lift him up. Let's promote some Ian We know books. some cool people. We do, but I have not read his books. Nah. <laughs> now, with co-author Andy Lanning, he had written a bunch of Aquaman titles back in the late 90s. So when Rebirth kicked off, DC pegged him as their go-to dude for Arthur and Mira. And Abnett's run on the series recently ended as Kelly Sue DeConnick just took over the book. Ooh, of Captain Marvel fame. Yes. Uh, all right. So Aquaman the Drowning. Here's the basic plot. Rather than run through the whole damn thing, let's just steal the description from Goodreads. How does that sound, Lisa? Fine to me. Those people are anonymous. We can just <laughs> steal their stuff. So here's the plot. Uh, he is Arthur Curry, Aquaman, King of Atlantis, member of the Justice League, world leader, superhero, a bridge between the surface world and the world below, and too far too many humans, the dictator of a rogue state. But Arthur and his beloved fiance, Mira, are determined to prove to humankind that Atlantis can be a force for peace and justice. Yet even as Aquaman strives to improve his public image, dark forces rise from the depths to crush his hopes and dreams. A cabal of Atlantean terrorists have declared war on their king and the surface world alike, and the killer known as Black Manta will stop at nothing to settle his blood feud with a hero he hates above all else. Can Aquaman stop the tide of distrust and bloodshed? Or to save the world, will he sacrifice himself? Well, it's definitely not the latter. <laughs> he yeah. makes it out of this book alive. He makes it out of this book A-okay. <laughs> All right, so let's dig in, Lisa. Where should we start with The Drowning? I think we should start with Arthur and Mira at the diner because poor Arthur Curry, he's been feeling a lot of stress at work. <laughs> Coram Rath and the Deluge is given him grief because they're like, you know, you are loyal to the United States and you're not paying enough attention. Yeah. Forget the surface world. Come back to us. You're not a king worthy of your throne. Blah, blah, blah. I hate you. Punchy, punchy. Yeah. And we talked about this a lot at, in our last episode that Arthur has, an avoidant relationship with Atlantis. Yeah, and, and they're saying, you're our king. Come hang with us. We're going to treat you way better than those on dry land. Coram Rath is not wrong in some aspects. I mean, he is a racist. Right. <laughs> so that's disgusting. But he's not wrong about Arthur avoiding his responsibilities to his people. Right. And then um, he has an anxious relationship with dry land. You know, he's been part of the justice league, but he's like bottom rung. He is the superhero most likely to be bashed upon. Well, he's desperate for acceptance of the surface world, probably more so than the Atlanteans. And that's what this embassy represents is him saying to uh, the United States and the surface as a whole, I love you, please love me. And he's bringing Mira into this. And in the first issue, Aquaman Rebirth number one, when they're at Sam's restaurant and 
Mira is trying to keep the clam chowder down, she doesn't understand what this wretched soup <laughs> situation is. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't think they, they have a lot of soup in the sea. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be like efficiency-wise underwater but, soup. But we've seen them drink wine and and cider and such in Mira Tidebreaker. They have those well, sippy cups. Well, they have the cups. sippy cups. So do you think there's like a soup sippy cup sitch? I think there would have to be. <laughs> I think they're out of necessity. But based on her reaction to the chowder, uh, I don't think she, she says tries it's it too fine. Often. But yeah, fine, that's... fine, big F word there. <laughs> fine. So yeah, I mean, you know, Mira's playing the good spouse, right? And he goes like, you know, you don't have to have the soup if you don't like the soup. Like, and he's going, like, I understand. I'm trying to get you to want to stay with me here on dry land. I'm asking you to compromise a lot. And he goes on to say, I don't want to ask too much of you. <laughs> and she replies, Arthur, you ask for nothing of me. I give what it is what is in my heart to give. And I think... He takes that at face value, which he should. It is what he, she is saying to his face. But this is also a conversation that they had during the trench as well, a, a variation of this. I think that she's stuffing her feelings a little bit, and it's got to be emotionally complicated because she understands that Arthur is a dual citizen, but he is the object of her heart. He is her lover. He's also her betrothed. He's also her king. So when it comes to the idea of compromise and obedience, that's got to be really complicated mm -hmm. to her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, so, but she says this refrain over and over again, I will do anything for you. I will do anything for you. But I think... By the end of this volume, when she decides to take the situation into her own hands, I think we get to see a little bit more of what she's feeling under the surface of, I'm making all of these compromises for you, and yet you still won't, you still won't actually listen to what my actual opinion is. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm on, I'm on Mira's side on this one. She could do a better job of going of being more direct of being more direct i I do think she does feel in her heart she would do anything for him, but he doesn't reciprocate in any because way because he's so oblivious he, he he like you said, he takes her on face value, she said this, she means this he's not reading any other cues right you know and, and, and whether that's kind of like a willful ignorance like right. he doesn't have the emotional fortitude to go what through, through what he's going through and consider his fiance's opinions right. is awful. Uh, now, the other unique aspect of this first issue uh, is that we have a narrator who is being pretty passive aggressive. Well, he starts off passive aggressive. And as you're reading along, you're going like, this guy who's narrating this story is maybe really a jerk. And then by the end, you're like, no, no, he's a bad dude. Oh no, it's Black Manta. Yeah, it was so funny because as I was like reading it, I was just assuming the uh, omnipotent narrator. And right in the beginning, he's like, 
you know, this man sees himself as a protector of the oceans as a whole. Is this confidence and admiral ambition or supreme arrogance? I was like, dude, (laughs) who is Judgy, judgy. Yeah. Yeah, and so we are now introduced to Black Manta on the last page. He's got his sword out. He's out for blood. He wants the revenge uh, that that uh, for his father's murder at the hands of Arthur Curry many years ago. And it's clear that he's been following Arthur Curry very closely yeah. because even he says that um, you know Mira has been na- made the ambassador to Atlantis. And even Black Manta says, like, in many ways, she epitomizes the traditional isolationist urge of Atlantis, (laughs) right? So even he, even Black Manta from a distance goes like, you know, she's kind of a weird choice for ambassador, (laughs) considering (laughs) that she really doesn't see the dry land and Atlantis coming together anytime soon. So real quickly, uh, Black Manta is, you know, Aquaman's main antagonist. Yeah. But this is the first time you've ever encountered him in a comic book, correct? I believe so, yeah. yeah. So what 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 are your thoughts on Black Manta as a, a villain? And maybe I think we'll get into it a little bit further uh, into the uh, embassy plot, but just taking Aquaman Rebirth number one, this narration and, and what have you. And his look, he looks cool. He looks cool. He's not particularly dynamic. He is... As far as character, he has his eyes on one prize, and that's getting revenge on Aquaman. And uh, because of that, he gets put together with Nemo. And but the secret organization, right? But he doesn't really seem to have very many ambitions beyond his revenge of his father's. I'm death. always fascinated by the bad guy who has a. Um, justified vengeance as his motivation. You know, uh, Aquaman did kill his father. And depending on who's writing that uh, origin story, Arthur is more culpable in some scenarios than in others. And it's kind of like Khan in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, He's right to his rage. And I like that as a motivator if they acknowledge some justification, but Uh, well, I think that when we eventually see black Manta and uh, Aquaman go head to head, I think that Aquaman puts a spin on the story that I don't think is necessarily fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's not jump to that yet. Let's all right. So that's, that's Aquaman issue one. So that, Part of the story is considered the prologue. Right. And so now we're going to be entering into part one. Yeah, the monthly series. Right. In this first issue, we start with a conversation that's actually a lot like the conversation in the diner. It's a little bit of a rehash of the points of view of Arthur and Mira. They're share, you know, they're they're having a, a chat. Uh, looking out over Amnesty Bay, uh, they're they're drinking coffee and uh, they're reassessing th- their situation on land as they're about to open the embassy. It's really a conversation between like the practical and the ideological because Mira brings up the point of like, you know, you see the people of land and the people of the sea coming closer together, but I don't really see that happening in our lifetime. 
And he goes on to say, like, there is all of this tension and the tension needs to be resolved. Like the drift, like I just stopped this huge war attack Mm -hmm. and this needs to happen. And she says, like, I understand that this needs to happen. I see that you cannot become a whole person without the land and the sea coming together. And so he ends the conversation like, well, this is going to be a big day. He never really addresses like her concerns, her concerns. And and she is willing to like, she'll breach the conversation, but then she'll kind of collapse and just go with whatever he has to say. conversation is very similar to conversations that you see in films set around the civil rights movement. You know, harmony is never going to happen. Dr. King, you know, this is a dream. Uh, It is foolish. Uh, Land and sea will always remain apart. Uh, And, and while it, while Mira can imagine a fantastical future far, 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 in their timeline many years after they are dead, she can't conceive of the surface and Atlantis ever getting along in their lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. But he has really made a huge stride in setting up a spindrift. Is that what it's called? Spindrift station, which is the Atlantean embassy on dry land. Yeah. Yeah. And that it is a a, a tremendous feat. And you know, that first issue as they're starting to, uh, bring guests in crikey, what's the, uh, uh, the Joanna Stubbs, Lieutenant Joanna Stubbs of the Royal Navy, British Royal Navy. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Who is the most British character who's ever Britished. Um, uh, you know, like that, that whole opening sequence where Arthur is showing off his, new digs you know there is an excitement and uh, 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 an excitement of connecting these two worlds but of course it's issue one we know that's not going to happen right and we also know that Black Manta has his goggles out and he's watching from a distance yeah he's been hardcore a lurking and he has come to the conclusion that the way to get to the heart of Aquaman is through Mira right So he uses this press tour of the Spindrift Station as an opportunity to stage a terrorist attack where, like, the Spindrift Station is kind of cool because it has rooms that are dry and then it has rooms that are wet, full of (laughs) seawater so that the Atlanteans can, I guess, be comfortable or whatever. So he... Uh, sets charges and does yeah, this he, explosion. He fakes illness like he tried some crazy Atlantean dish, yeah, fakes illness. He's wearing the rubber mask of Ray Delane, Daily Planet newspaper man. Right, right. And then when he's discovered by one of the Atlantean agents that he's not actually sick, boom, explosions, explosions, explosions. And suddenly he's in Black Manta costume. Yes. And he's created, he's exploded a wall between one of the dry rooms and one of the sea rooms and Mira is trying to hold the water back as long as she can to let the people escape but then he uses his black manta technology to zap her and then um Aquaman and Black Manta start doing fisticuffs. I think that his whole plan, he's like, I'm I'm going to, you know, get Mira. And then that's like he gets distracted immediately. Rage, Lisa. <laughs> that's exactly what would have happened with Khan. He can't handle it. That's right. Um, so they're fighting and 
Mantis like, you're a killer. The fine and noble king who wants the world to love him is a killer. And he calls his uh, plan to create this bridge between land and sea a vain ambition. And he's like, you're deluded. The world is afraid of you. And it should be. You'll never be whole, Arthur Curry. And that's how part one ends. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, and the second issue picks right up right, uh, immediately. Right. And this is where we get the conversation between Aquaman and Manta go like so Manta's like you killed my dad you killed my dad (laughs) and Aquaman is like this feud between us achieves nothing like yeah I killed your dad sorry bro sorry bro (laughs) but I've learned a lot I've grown I would never be the the wonderful king and peacemaker that I am if I hadn't killed your dad (laughs) but like by you killing me nothing is gained how about you do some jail time Aquaman (laughs) Right, I know. And so Manta's like, nothing. I've crushed your dreams, you bastard. I've brought your egotistical ambition to be seen as a peacemaker crashing down. So he's trying to bring further shame upon Aquaman. And Aquaman eventually agrees. And he's like, I guess I really don't gain anything by killing you. So I'm going to let you go. Doesn't he hand the uh, trident to... Black Manta. Oh yeah, he does. Yeah, crazy. Like I, I love this moment. This is my favorite moment in the entire book. As much as I'm here for Mira and Arthur conversation, I love this stalemate that occurs where Black Manta is. He has his revenge. He's going to end Arthur. And he falls for the logic of Arthur. It literally makes no sense. Like Black Manta's entire thing is like, I have one thing on my to-do list. Cannot wait to check it off. It is killing Aquaman. Then Aquaman hands him a weapon and is like, you know, that, you know, killing me is not really going to fill that hole in your heart that's the shape of your dad. And Manta's like, damn you. And he throws the trident. He takes the knowledge that Arthur gives him and he applies it to all the revenge fiction he has ever (laughs) read and goes, dude, you're right. He does. I actually like this moment. But it's not like Black Manta then is just like, well, I'm just never going to kill Aquaman. He well, goes like, I'll join Nemo. Well, and th- th- Nemo. that's the problem. Like, like, well, that's not, that, no, that's not necessarily the problem, Lisa. It's that he comes to a realization that killing Arthur is not going to satisfy the void in his soul. So he has to kill Arthur's dreams, essentially. Right. And, and he you know, until Nemo comes and recruits him at the end of this issue, he's probably going to wander the earth in misery. And he, you know, but, but, but Nemo is there to re-engage Give him the a rage. new sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill not the man, but the dream. And again, that is a classic revenge plot as well. Well, the, ultimately the conversation ends with, Aquaman saying, I miss my father every day. I'm sorry I took yours. Go to jail, Arthur. And then they just walk their separate ways. And then the very next page, Mira's like, so you didn't kill Black Manta. He's like, yeah, I didn't see I didn't see the point. And she, and she does make a point of saying, well, 
totally would have, if you realize, yeah. I, I totally would have killed Black Manta. That is, that would have been the thing to do. Because Mira has read all the comic books <laughs> that say, like, you let this guy go, it's only to come back tenfold. Mira is also a warrior yeah. who has lived her whole life as part of the royal family. Right. And then there is Arthur Curry, who's essentially just a small town guy by some trick of the genes. He's been a monarch for like several months. Why does it mirror end it? <laughs> like what keeps her uh, hanging with this very human dude at this point, do you think? Because she's in love with him. As simple as that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, she's totally in love with him. And I do think that she likes him. His ideology. And she wishes she could be 100% behind it, but she's just plain not. Yeah, yeah. It's not in her royal blood. Right. So the next issue opens up. Aquaman and Merc are heading back to Spindrift, and the U.S. military stops them in their tracks, says, I'm sorry, but uh, the U.S. government reclaims this land. We're shutting down the embassy. You got to go home. Yeah, yeah. And this is like first thing in the morning, so... At 6 a.m., Aquaman is at work, you know, and, and they're like, yeah, we've revoked Atlantis's diplomatic status. So obviously Aquaman is very disappointed. So he goes home and Mira has been taking a morning swim mm-hmm. and she comes out of the water horny AF. <laughs> she is like, it's morning. Generally in the morning, we say good morning carnally. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not really feeling up for it right now because um, my dream of the Spindrift station is dead. Our diplomatic status is revoked. And I think that Mira is like secretly a little bit happy. Relieved. Yeah. She's like, you know, she is such a strong individual not to in this moment say, I told you so. Oh yeah. Yeah. That is completely like if this is because they're betrothed. If yeah. they had been wed, like that totally been like, wah, wah. sorry, dude. But she, she tries to reason with him. Like, you know, they're afraid of Atlantis. They've always been afraid of Atlantis. And Arthur's like, but that's why we need Spindrift Station. And are you ready to be ambassador again? And she's like, um, Hell Frankly, no. that Aquawoman costume is humiliating, and I have zero interest in explaining to journalists how I managed to keep my hair so full and lustrous despite all of the salt water. <laughs> I love that little quote because it's like, well, you're literally like the only ambassador. So, like, why is he making her wear a uniform when literally she's like, so. Well, and also the idea is that here is an Atlantean and all that America wants to talk about is her hair. Well, I mean, that's TBA. We're the worst. <laughs> TBE, to be expected, because we're, we're the worst. But like to me, it's to just America. like, who is making her wear a uniform? It's got to be Aquaman. Sure, sure, sure. And for the rest of the book going forward, it becomes about Arthur desperately trying to regain his place in the United States with the surface people. And this sets the tone for the rest of Dan Abnett's run on the book, where the actions of the second half of this book are going to alienate his other society, his other home. Yeah. 
Well, that conversation ends with her going like, well, I never really expected you to give up anyway. I'm totally going to go. I'm going to pull on that super tight, super hot uniform once again and go back to my ambassador duties. Because, as you say, she loves him. And, but she does throw in there, there had better be time for a proper good morning before we leave. Oh, dang. She is getting hers. <laughs> so then there's some uh, silly shenanigans with Nemo and the Fisher King, and Black Manta kills the Fisher King and becomes the head of Nemo in the span of three pages. Yep. I don't like the Nemo business. Secret societies rarely interest me. But I do like how it allows Black Manta to reevaluate his mission statement and, and, and you know, find another angle on his revenge on Aquaman. Yeah. He gets recharged, re-energized. Yep. Meanwhile, the royal couple, Aquaman and Mira, walk themselves to Washington, D.C., and they're going to talk to Mr. Gantry, the chief of staff, in hopes to get their di- diplomatic status reinstituted. And while they're there, the uh, Navy vessel, the Pontotrain, how do you say that? That Pontchar train. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Americans, we don't know. Uh, while they're there, the U.S. Navy vessel is attacked by Nemo, and it's made to look like Atlantis has attacked. And yeah, they leave a sword. Yeah, they leave a sword. <laughs> and so at the White House, handcuffs are slapped on Aquaman's wrists. Yeah, they assume that this meeting was created as a distraction, and... Aquaman is like, you know, like, I'm a member of the Justice League. (laughs) Superman is totally going to vouch for me. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't need to. I could break your... Yeah, they're like, no, no, too bad, so sad. You're under arrest. And Mira's like, what? We're going to war. Yeah, and uh, uh, Arthur is like, don't do anything rash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is another typical uh, trope in superhero uh, comics. I, to show you that uh, I am a good person, I will willingly uh, be placed under arrest. In fact, Mira did this in the trench when the cops arrested her for her oh, actions yeah. at the pet store. That's oh, that that's true. But then later, she's totally she busts like, out. Yeah, she <laughs> and, had her own like for Aquaman. He says, like, these cuffs are a symbol of my compliance. Mm -hmm. This is me complying with you. Mm -hmm. Where Mira is like, ooh, you're going to another crime scene? Let me come. Right, right, right. Uh, But, of course, you know, he spends the next issue uh, in this secret prison for a little while. But Mira can't handle it. Yeah, so she's talking to Tula, who is the regent of Atlantis. And she's like, I'm inclined to just ignore what our king said and just break him out of prison. These people are barbarians, surface-dwelling, air-breathing, uncivilized primitives. And it's Tula who actually talks her down that first time. And she's like, you know, things here in Atlantis are going kind of nuts. People are being way more open with their biases against the surface world. And she's like, I've seldom seen hatred of the surface world so openly expressed. So, And, and, and I love that moment from Tula, but... The idea of, um, you know, uh, peaceful resistance that Arthur is displaying here is also very cliche. Mm -hmm. It's something that we see all the time in our popular fiction. And it's hard not to just side with Mira's cold, calculated logic. Right. You know, because she sees the pain in the future because she has experienced the pain in the past. Well, and she's also being 
accused to her face by Mr. Gantry going like, well, you're just passing secret messages to Atlantis and pretending like you're not responsible. You're clearly responsible. Right, right, right. So while Aquaman is being questioned by Agent Copeland, I don't get that reference, Lisa. You're a music person. Copeland is the guy that wears the beef. Never mind. Okay. So Agent Copeland is questioning Aquaman about the deluge. And Aquaman is insisting on this peaceful resistance. And he says, I can comply with you by staying in the cell or I can comply comply with you by bringing those responsible to international justice. Your choice. But it turns out it's Mira's choice because Mira <laughs> busts through the wall. Love it, love and, it, love and it. And Aquaman is like, what the hell are you doing? And she's like, my my love, listen to me. I admire you beyond words. The stance you have taken to humble yourself, to be locked in their chains, beautifully symbolic and not working at all. <laughs> so good. How do you not love Mira? She is great. But then we get like this passive aggressiveness yeah. from both sides because Aquaman is like, it's a good thing that I love you because <laughs> I am really upset with you right now. And she's like, well, it's a good thing I love you because I saved your butt and now you're out of prison so we can get things actually done. So I good. So good. So we roll into part five. Yeah. Which is uh, the Justice League show up. Superman is there on their doorstep. That's right. So military is like firing on Aquaman and Mira and Aquaman is like no bloodshed. And she's like, yeah, but I'm not going to let them kill you. And he's like, well, I mean like both sides, like no, no bloodshed. No, not our blood, not their blood. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. And they continue to argue while fighting off soldiers. And Mira's like, your way wasn't working. And he's like, well, now we'll never know if my way was going to work because I, if I had just stayed down there. What a dude. And so she's like, so are you not okay with what I did? What does this mean? Are, is our betrothal off? Oh, oh. So we think about that uh, two-step passive-aggressive polka where Mira's like, we're having this conversation now. And Aquaman is like, but we're busy. So, so when one one person reaches out and then the other person mm. resists mm. that mm. creates that that loop of hurt uh, right uh. where each person escalates so mira is getting more frantic aquaman is getting more resistant um but then aquaman finally goes like this is not the co- time for this conversation but for the record just to assuage your emotions I still want to marry you. I just want to live through this moment. So <laughs> yeah, thank yeah, you very yeah. much. And then that's when Superman shows up. That's right. So if we go back to um, the Sue Johnson discussion, they do have their arguments, but they are able to recover quickly, f- at least from Aquaman's perspective. Point of view. Yeah, yeah. Where I think that... That does not end the conversation for Mira. Yeah, the, I the, think the that... Arc- this, this arc doesn't resolve anything. No, it doesn't resolve anything, but at least they can have their argument and kind of return to some kind of stasis. Though I do feel like Mira is stuffing her feelings a little more mm-hmm. than she really should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you can stuff them for now, but are you going to stuff them for your entire marriage? 
Right. But okay. anyway, Superman shows up. Yeah, Superman. Uh, and, you know, what I love is that clearly Dan Abnett is an Aquaman guy. This is Aquaman's title. So we get to see Aquaman punch Superman across the battlefield. We get to see Mira punch Superman across the battlefield. He's a bit of a ragdoll to these Atlanteans. And I and I dig that. So, you know, Superman's strength is only as strong as the writer steering the ship, right? Right. Uh, so there's, you know scuffle, miscommunication, anger happening here, but it ultimately resolves in a conversation between Justice League members. Right. I I think even though uh, Aquaman might be delivering some physical hurt to Superman, I think that Aquaman is crushed that Superman doesn't see where he's coming from because He was like, of all people, yeah. like you too are from this alien place. Yeah, you're a foreigner. I'm a foreigner. What's and, the deal? you know, people have on and off feared you big time. And, and they, here you are acting as a government stooge. Exactly. Like Frank Miller wants you to. Exactly. So I think that when we think about how desperately Aquaman wants to be accepted by the United States, by dry land where his father came from, I think that his being part of the Justice League was gave him the affirmation that acceptance can happen. And for Superman, the head of the Justice League, going like, you need to fix this. You need to stop, stop this or we're going to drop you yeah. like a hot rock. Brutal. Aquaman is... Devastated. Yeah, destroyed, destroyed. And that conversation doesn't get resolved in this issue, but it does get resolved a few trade paperbacks later within Rebirth. I'm not going to say it's necessarily satisfying, (laughs) but it does get resolved. Meanwhile, Black Manta takes over Nemo, and that's it. And that's the end. That's the end of the book. Oh, snap. We missed something major. We did? What, what, what? So right before Superman shows up, their argument is actually escalating. So... There's all of these people, like military people, between Aquaman and Mira uh-huh. and Atlantis. Uh-huh. Mira's like, so what do you want us to do, Aquaman? Punch her way to the water? And he's like, well, that sounds like the kind of thing you would do. And she's like, sarcasm, gross. And she said, she says, maybe we shouldn't be married if you're going to treat me like. And he goes, Mira. And she's like, I mean it. And he goes, Mira. Stop it. And then that's when Superman shows up. So she's she's in a place of ultimatums at this point. She's going like, you don't respect me. You don't re- respect my opinion. And granted, this is an escalating situation because they are in that two-step polka of, I want to talk. I'm not up for talking right now. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is the bubbling up of all of those emotions of like, I've been suppressing my real opinion you know, I've tried to broach the subject, but then I've always convalesced to your opinion. Maybe it's time for you to start listening to me for a change, which I think is something that needs to happen. Ooh, I just hit the microphone with my book. How dare you? I know. Uh, okay, so Lisa. Yes. You mentioned earlier in the episode how you felt like you were starting to understand the dynamic between Aquaman and Mira a little bit better and that maybe you were ready to uh, offer guidance to them. Like, are they going to make it through this transitional relationship danger zone Uh or not? uh uh I think, 
I think they can do it. Okay. They obviously Why? have a lot of growing to do as a couple, but I think we're in a place where Arthur doesn't have to let go of his ideology. Mira is behind him and behind the idea of bringing dry land and the sea together. But he has to recognize Mira's expertise mm. and Mira's experience at being an Atlantean, but also being a monarch and being a warrior. And I think that Mira has finally seen that she needs to speak her mind more mm -hmm. and she needs to ask for respect more assertively because if you try to bring up your opinion, bring up your where you're coming from couched in, well, we'll do what you want to do. I will... I will make all of your dreams come true, but I don't really see Atlantis and the United States coming together, but Atlantis really doesn't want to be, you know, mixed up with things that are happening on dry land. But whatever you want to do is fine. She, she is seeing that that really doesn't work anymore. So I think they're finally in a place where they can openly express their feelings. Of course, it's a, it's about communication always. Uh, uh -huh. So you're in volume one of Aquaman rebirth. There are eight volumes, uh, of this abnet run. Uh, and I've read all of them at this point. And I love where this relationship ends in the drowning. And I agree. It gets to a point where it's like Mira is not going to just idly sit by and allow and, and, and let, Arthur make all the decisions, right? Unfortunately, oh no, that doesn't continue necessarily in the next several volumes because so many other factors like Nemo, the Justice League, and the Atlantean Civil War that's on the horizon keep interrupting their relationship. And as much as I love how Abnett uh, brings Arthur and Mira together by the end of this volume, he's constantly separating them over the course of his entire narrative. And by the end of his narrative, there still really is no resolution to their relationship. And he hands their characters to Kelly Sue DeConnick almost in the exact same place where Jeff Johns uh, handed the characters to Dan Abnett. Well, and it's I think, really frustrating. I think Sue Johnson would say, well, they might be in the midst of a slow erosion of their relationship mm -hmm. because there is just this continued isolation and disconnection. And over time, you think about the, the mutability of their attachment over time, Mira and Aquaman are both going to be giving the other person the signals of, I reach out to you to no avail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I ask things of you, but you're not there to support me when I need it, which could ultimately end their relationship. Yeah, well, I don't know. So how would you apply what Mira and Aquaman are going through to our relationship. Uh, I, I think it's like uh, riding the metro or going to the airport. If you see something, say something, uh -huh. <laughs> right? Like th there's, 
there's only so much of um, withholding honest opinion from your spouse that you can do in life. And I think that was a place where we were at when we first started dating. Certainly, you know, I think back to those first batch of movies that we went to in 2007, where I was like, Hey, Lisa, do you like horror films? And you're like, yeah, I love horror films. Well, let's go see Rob Zombie's Halloween. Let's go see 28 weeks later. Let's go see Hostel part two. And then over the course of torturing you with these really <laughs> graphic, horrible movies, I broke you and you had to like spew your your disgust at all these films that I was dragging you to. In my defense, I really had never seen a horror film. So when you had asked if I liked horror films, I was like, well, I like, you know, action movies. Those are violence adjacent. So I'm sure I would enjoy a horror film in theory. Right. And so, whoops. But sorry. Those, are, those are natural uh, conversations that you have in the early dating life and maybe even in early marriage, right? Where you're still feeling out what it means to live with somebody. But if you are still having those uh, emotions or those instincts to uh, resist truth to your partner, you're in trouble. Yeah. And you got you to gotta be 100% open with your significant other. I think that's true. And I think that there is something to the Sue Johnson hold me tight conversation where when you find yourself in an argument, whether, you know, it's Brad and Lisa at home in the apartment or Mira and Aquaman as they casually fight off the U.S. military. Like, if you find yourself spiraling in out of rationality to just slow down and say, well, here is exactly what I'm feeling, and you can tell me exactly what you're feeling free of judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, we don't have the responsibilities of two kingdoms on our shoulders. Exactly, and <laughs> batting off yeah. um, bullets and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And, and live it up to Superman. <laughs> but I think that making your emotional signals clear and specific is a skill, and you have to practice it. The same with hyper-empathy. It's hard to hear... Um, from your partner um, that they're not going to meet your expectations in one way or another. Sure. But for you to put that aside and say, I still love you. I want, I want to understand where you're coming from and I want to make this better. Okay. So that's the end of episode three. We are not done with Arthur and Mira. However, we need to pick another book for our final episode on this Royal couple. Uh, I wanted desperately to jump ahead to Kelly Sue DeConnick's current run on the character, but there is not a lot of contact between Mira and Arthur in those comics. Uh, so it just wouldn't make sense. I think we have to go backwards, Lisa, in the timeline okay. of their relationship. I want to go back to the New 52. Oh, okay. So that's what – so our last book was part of the New 52. Right, The Trench. So the next title uh, takes place between The Trench and uh, The Drowning. And okay. it's written by Jeff Parker. Uh, I'm a big fan of Parker's work on Batman 66 and Marvel's Agents of Atlas. And he took over from Jeff Johns on Aquaman with volume five, Sea of Storms. That's what I want to read. Sure, I'm down. All right, so let's do it. Let's see if this works for our concept 
by taking a step backwards in their relationship. But of course, we're seeing their relationship from a different perspective, a, dis- a different artistic point of view. Right. And this will also be our last episode with Dr. Sue Johnson. So she has two more chapters, one more section of her book to convince us that monogamy is the one and only way for all of humanity. You can't wait to get rid of her. I can't. (laughs) I hope she doesn't (laughs) listen to this podcast. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you watch my Twitter while we're doing Brene Brown and I'm tagging her in everything. (laughs) And then uh, with Dr. Sue Johnson, weirdly quiet. Yeah, Yeah, no tags. Okay, Brad, let's get the shark out of here. Oh, I said that. I said that last week, didn't I? You did, I? but it's so good. Yeah, cutting and pasting our <laughs> script. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at mouthdork. Uh, please send your emails to cbccpodcast at gmail.com like Tessia. We want to answer your questions. We want to hear from you. Lisa, though, where can our listeners find you? On the sea of the internet. Ooh, you can dive right in and send me words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Yeah. And while you're hanging out, in the cool waters of iTunes, why not leave us a five-star review? We would very much appreciate it. Yes, please. So until next time, guys, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.